Welcome to another episode of the R-Squared Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Levy. Today's guest is Matt Deanna, a spatial analytics savant and regular contributor to Nylon Calculus. Matt and I talk about uh, team space charts that he's been working with at Nylon Calculus this season, um, his background with spatial analytics and predictive analytics, and uh, some of his recent work with John Wall and the Suns three-point guard lineups. Hey, Matt, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Good. Really glad we were able to get you on. Uh, we've been uh, we've been uh, talking about this uh, for a while since earlier in the year. Um, you've done some uh, some really cool stuff at Nylon Calculus uh, since we launched, and and uh, a lot of your work has been around these um, these team space charts that you've uh, designed and built. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can, uh, if anybody hasn't hasn't seen the charts yet, if you can uh, sort of explain the methodology and and what the charts are are used for. Yeah, so what I attempted to do or what I'm attempting to do is take multiple player shot charts, specifically um, you know, a most used lineup or a unique lineup, whatever the case is, or an individual over the years, mm-hmm. and overlay them on top of each other to look for certain correlations and patterns and commonalities amongst them. So with the original Team Space ones, we looked at all of the teams from last season, and we tried to look at um, and understand how and where the overlap occurred amongst like a most used lineup. <laughs> so that way, in theory, you could see which players are shooting from the exact same spaces as their teammates and then where the uniqueness lies. The idea was, you know, we started with some, a team like the Spurs, where they're pretty evenly spaced and uniquely spread out. The idea being that the more unique and more diverse your shooting is, the better off you are as a team. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's meant to be like a proxy of spacing mm-hmm. on, the, on the court. You don't want guys that are always shooting from the exact same spots all the time. You want some diversity amongst them. So you want a guy in the corner, a guy at the wings, maybe the elbow, whatever the case is for that team. Well, this was an attempt to start to visualize that information. And it was just the idea of overlaying multiple people at the same time to get at some of that. So I think, I think it's starting to do that. Um, it's been interesting. It's been, I've been trying to make it better and better each iteration, but I, I think we're getting somewhere with it. Um, I've I've really enjoyed them. I, th- I think they're one of the coolest things that we've been able to feature at Nylon Calculus this year. And... Um, you know, there's shot charts are sort of the new thing. You know, we had Austin Clemens uh, stuff uh, earlier this year, and you know, Kirk Goldsbury's been doing this for a couple of years, and now there's, um, you know, there's a couple other, um, uh, a couple other sites now that let you pull up these shot charts. But um, the ability to overlay um, and see multiple players in lineups, uh, I think, is 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 really. Um, it's really informative in a way that that some of the other things uh, don't quite capture. So, so with the analysis that you've done so far, with with some of the things that you've looked at, have you found sort of like general patterns, um, things um, using more space, less space, um, maybe certain areas where overlap is good? Yeah. So one of the pieces I did was specifically about all the NBA champs going back to like 96, 97. I think. Mm-hmm. That was the first year we were able to get data. And by the way, Daryl Blackport is a data genius yeah. when it comes to all this. Absolutely. I'd be remiss if I didn't say anything about that man because yeah. he's made so much of this possible. But um, so by looking at the champs specifically, the idea was, well, let's use them as a proxy for every year, them being the best team, to see what the best always looks like. Mm-hmm. And that, that piece was interesting because while there was some variation from champion to champion, I mean, overall, and I mean, it was obviously heavy on the Spurs and some of the heat, mm-hmm. but 
it was about precision and diversity is what it really came down to is minimizing overlap mm-hmm. seems to actually be important. So that was kind of my hypothesis going in mm-hmm. of, you know, you want to be able to really maximize multiple areas of the court and not mm-hmm. overlap. And that seems to be the case that that's what the best teams do. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at last season's weakest teams, there'd be a ton of overlap or there'd be a ton of, you know, just congestion. Mm-hmm. The Pistons come to mind, which I guess is somewhat of a sensitive topic at this point. Yeah. But the Nets came to mind, too, because Joe Johnson was just everywhere. Uh-huh. There was no room for anyone else. And then you've got a lot of mid-range shooters in there as well. But some of the teams that just didn't do well would have just a lot of congestion in the same spots and not a lot of precision. So, I mean, those are some of the main things that, that came through. And one of the other things about these two that I think is important, because you're right, shot charts have become the absolute craze. Everyone wants to mess with them and do great things with them, and there's mm-hmm. some amazing things out there. What these are doing is that whole hunting ground philosophy that I was touching on, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just plotting the points, but it's actually meant to be a density or a cluster of the points where they're most successful from. Mm-hmm. So it's mapping all of the shots, but then it's waiting based on the made ones and then identifying clusters. Mm-hmm. So like if you overlaid these hunting grounds with one of Austin's shot charts, they're going to highlight most or at least some of the areas that his shot chart does, but mm-hmm. he's going to show every point where these don't. So it's a slight, it's an important distinction because it's not a one-to-one comparison, but mm-hmm. I think it's good in that way because it offers something different. And honestly, when I put this together, I was surprised that it hadn't been done yet because to me it was just the idea of color coding and then mm-hmm. you know changing some of the visibility. But yeah, I think I think it's working in terms of understanding some dynamics. Mm-hmm. And so, like a real technical question: How does it handle? Um, like, how does it? How, how how do you handle volume in these charts? So, say, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but uh, let's let's say you've got uh, the Knicks and you have Carmelo Anthony versus. Um, versus Iman Shumpert or something like that, you you can't judge them based on the, or you can't map their hunting grounds based on the same volume because they're they're working in totally different scales, right? Right, so that's the thing. It winds up controlling for them. So mm-hmm. it, it puts them all on the same plane, okay. which is both unfair and fair at the same time, if that makes any sense. Because that way, at least it's a common ground for that entire team, mm-hmm. but um, it doesn't take into account that it's basically mellow versus the rest of the team when it comes to actual quantity. Mm-hmm. But they'll all look the same on the actual chart. So mm-hmm. that, that's, a, that's a really good point and something I'm not taking into account right now. And I did that by design yeah. because I wanted to see like, you know, where is Amon Shumpert shooting versus Carmelo Anthony? And even if he's only taking one shot for every seven of Mellows, mm-hmm. are they from the exact same spot? You yeah. Know? So, and if they are, then that's still a problem. I remember it was even more so an issue with Raymond Felton last mm-hmm. year on that team specifically. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so I control for that basically. Okay. So one of the, the, um, uh, I don't know if a theory is the right word, but one of the things that that I've noticed in sh- in looking at shot selection, like over the past couple of years and <clears throat> stuff, when I started messing around with XPPS uh, like two years ago, and conversations with Kirk Goldsberry, is it it seemed like a tr- a trend with the with the really elite offenses was that they would have a player or multiple players who would be uh, maybe one or two players who were really efficient from a lot of different places and then everybody else was really specialized. And so I'm wondering if that's something that you saw as you were looking at like all teams from last year where maybe um, 
you know, like obviously like the heat would be an example, like, you know, LeBron scores from all over the floor and does it really well. And then everybody else has really sort of specific zones. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's normally one, it's not even a star, but there's Mm -hmm. one kind of, you know, catch all jack of all trades on, on an offense. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of fill in the rest, at least the best teams seem to. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the teams that don't, Mm -hmm. it looks just like a cluttered mess. I think Jeff Fogle called it like a, a sprinkled donut at one point when he was staring at one of them because yeah. all, all the colors just blending together. Mm-hmm. But um, the Mavs also come to mind. Their, mm-hmm. Theirs from last year and from when they won the championship was, I thought it was a thing of beauty because Dirk is just, he's just violent from everywhere on the court. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, Ellis and Calderon and the way they crafted that lineup and that team, it was really just maximizing his activity and mm-hmm. then just complimentary pieces all around it. So I'll be curious. I want, that's one of the teams I want to start to look at now because they've just been so deadly mm-hmm. and with the weapons they have, um, how they play across the court, I think is just impressive. But yeah, to your point, that's exactly it. There's, there's one kind of, one kind of main focal point and mm-hmm. then a bunch of specialists. And so it seems like maybe this is like, this is a way to visualize the, um, that that idea of of needing a uh, an efficient high usage score, you know, that you can't run out of lineup with four Danny Greens, you know, or um, you know something like that. That you need uh, that you need one player who can sort of catch the 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 bulk of the shots and can still maintain some efficiency from from what we would think of as low efficiency areas. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, to that point, whenever I'm working on something, whether it's, you know, for now on calculus, for my, my real job, whatever the case is, I'm always about, you know, the results and the end output. Mm-hmm. And it's great if we can do something and, oh, wow, that looks really interesting. But if it isn't actually useful, then, you know, kind of what was the point? Mm-hmm. I'd always felt like with these, it's it's potentially an actual angle or insight into how a team's built mm-hmm. or what maybe the holes in that team are and how they could get filled, you know, if they're missing that kind of role or if they have no corner three-point shooters at all. You know, some mm-hmm. of the obvious things, but it it's very interesting that way. And I think it potentially... in involves that kind of insight you know Mm -hmm. and it could lend itself to that um so i know like uh you've you've done a lot of work where we're just sort of looking at teams and characterizing teams and we're going to talk about uh, some of those specific pieces you've done recently um you started to dabble a little bit with with trying to turn these charts into some metrics so like looking at the percentage of the floor that was that was uh territory that was overlapped between different players um uh hunting grounds and then some um measuring sort of like how much of the of the floor was actually covered by a scoring area um so what did i I know you just sort of did a little bit of that but but generally what did what did that look like um in terms of sort of like percentage of overlap or percentage of floor used was it just more floor used and less overlap was good so in general it was but at the same time some of the best teams just maximized so some of the Spurs teams specifically came to mind because they had overlap in certain spots mm-hmm. like they'd have two or three guys that would that would have hunting grounds in the corners mm-hmm. but it was it worked for them so it was like the overlap was fairly minimal but it wasn't always about covering all of the court you know mm-hmm. so it's but it also wasn't as drastic as like the Rockets let's yeah. say because their their theirs is just amazing in terms of how extreme it is. I'm actually trying to pull up the old article right now. But that was one of the things that I thought was interesting. Is it's great that we can visualize this with all the colors and everything. Mm-hmm. But if we could actually start to quantify it and capture some of those um, 
some of those metrics, it was going to be uh, it was going to be much more informative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because you can also see the progression when you looked at the at the NBA champs piece, where um, in like the early or mid to early, late nineties, it wasn't the mid range jump shot was still very much popular mm-hmm. and in use widely. Yeah. Whereas it slowly fades out over time. So even those like early Lakers teams from the two thousands. They were still all over the mid range, whereas then it slowly faded off as um, as the Spurs kind of came into power realistically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I'm looking at one of the graphs right now, and the overall percentage of court overlap started to trend upward over time. So there was actually more overlap, mm-hmm. and I think that spoke to the idea of it being about more about the system than the specific players. Mm-hmm. So like with the Spurs, and especially with some of the Heat teams the system was finding open shots in the same spots over and over, regardless of who took them. And so they just needed some, yeah, like some interchangeable players who could all sort of work from those areas. Yeah, exactly. And the heat were interesting too, because if you compare that, um, that Wade and Shaq champ to like one of the first LeBron and Wade championship teams, they're not entirely different in terms of how they were using like James Posey versus Mm -hmm. Mario Chalmers. And it's pretty interesting in that regard. So, yeah, there's definitely some consistency over time. Mm-hmm. So I know one of the other really neat things that you were starting to do earlier in the season um, and using the team space charts as sort of a basis is you were trying to turn this into some um, into some predictive metrics and trying to um, trying to make some predictions about where players would shoot from and specifically we're focused on Carmelo Anthony. Um, to, so what did that early what did that early work look like this year? So it was really interesting because I come from a background of being able to do predictive analysis, mm-hmm. and normally it's done in a couple different dimensions, specifically space and time. Mm-hmm. So what the initial team space stuff was doing was lending itself towards at least spatial prediction, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't really mess with time at all, which was fine. But um, So then doing the, uh, the shot caller stuff was designed to let's just look at one player, let's look at his entire career, and then start to look spatially at where if those hunting grounds can predict future locations during a game, during specific quarters, whatever the case was. Mm-hmm. And Carmelo at the time, we had some we had some good dialogue on the Nylon Calculus email thread about who to pick. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and at the time, he seemed like a great choice just because, you know, high usage. We have all of his career captured in terms of all of his shot data. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty to build off of. It's just this season is less than ideal to continue <laughs> doing predictions for him, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't want to say I shut it down as soon as he started to shut it down, but <laughs> it's kind of on a hiatus until he's consistently back in. But anyway, um, what I started to find was, you know, it, it, it worked. I mm-hmm. think there's it lended itself to being able to do some decent predictions. Mm-hmm. Um the tricky thing with prediction is there's always this balance of accuracy and precision, right? Because if you make the prediction big enough, you're going to be able to be right every time. Yeah. And then it's completely pointless. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, hey, he's going to shoot somewhere in this, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot box. Great. That doesn't help anyone, right? Yeah. So it's a balance of trying to be as precise as possible, sometimes even erring on the side of being overly precise, but it's much more useful then. Because, mm-hmm. again, trying to think of how something like that could be used, it's like if you gave that to someone and said, he's going to shoot from this exact spot. Well, if he's off by a foot, like an actual footstep, I'll take that, even though it's technically wrong. Yeah. You know? So what I was finding was, in general, in terms of the number of shots and the locations of shots, I'd be, I was doing fairly well, and I was getting better with each one, it seemed like. Like, mm-hmm. they were getting more accurate more precise and it was on to something yeah. which to me is indicative of 
this stuff actually has merit. And by looking at a player's past performance, regardless of the offensive system he's in, because this is the first year he's been in the triangle, right? Yeah. But yet we're able to predict his shot locations. That's that's pretty interesting. I mean, that's telling if we can actually do that, you mm-hmm. know. So I thought it I thought it was on the cusp of something that that could be pretty powerful. And and thinking of practical applications for that, um, this is something that that Seth uh, Seth Partnow and I talked about on an episode a while ago. Is about um, that that when we you know when these analytic tools are out there when they're widely disseminated, it's like both both sides have access to them, you know, the offense and the defense. So, you know, theoretically, if this was, um, you know, if this was workable as a system that teams were using and, and you had, you know, the accuracy and the precision down, um, it would be interesting how that would change the process on each side, you know. So if you could accurately project that Mello, you know, would take five first quarter shots from these locations, you know, then the defense is going to adjust or or maybe they don't. Maybe they're like, all right, we're fine with him shooting from those five spots. That you know that would be great if he you know if he took those if he took those shots. But um, you know having that information on both sides then sort of changes the inputs, which then you get a different output. Absolutely. So it's like you start you start messing with the system. You know you're injecting data points into the system, and then how is everyone going to respond? Mm-hmm. It, it's and it's it becomes a whole game within the game, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think you guys touched on in that, too, is just getting some of this stuff even used. Like, yeah. to get to that point mm-hmm. is going to is gonna be a miracle in itself. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of it's already being used, especially some of the metrics and some of, you know, the scouting projections and mm-hmm. things like that. But to the idea that you could convince a team, a coach, and then a player. Mm-hmm. I think that Doc Rivers quote that I heard the other day was amazing about how you think I have any influence on the players. I I just tell them <laughs> some stuff, then they go do what they want anyway. Yeah. So even if a coach bought into this idea, yes, nerd, you can tell me where he's going to shoot next. Mm-hmm. You've still got to convince the defender to actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. But assuming we were able to do all of that, I mean – yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, and uh-huh. that's that's the I think that's the hardest leap we still have mm-hmm. is okay, yeah, we think there's merit here. This can work. This can actually influence some things, but can people can we get people to use it? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a whole process in itself of even selling someone on the utility of it. And to play devil's advocate, do you think there's you know, if you got this, you know, if you got this system to, you know, whatever sort of hypothetical level where uh, of precision and accuracy where you'd be happy where you'd be happy with do you think the the margin the marginal benefit of that would be greater um than 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 just sort of the general scouting reports that they have now that you know like Mello likes to shoot from this block and he likes to turn over this shoulder you know and he likes to um you know catch here and and dribble dribble left and and pull up from this spot Right, and see, that's a really good question because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really hard to say. Like, if you told someone he's going to shoot from that elbow next time, what, what do they actually do differently? You yeah. Know, do, they, do they deny it, like you said before, or do they just say, yeah, go for it, that's better mm-hmm. than a layup? Yeah. Um, I, that's, that's a great question because I'd like to think, you know, they do something to divert him away from that and mm-hmm. the idea that once you divert someone out of their comfort zone, it's going to be a miss regardless because you were able to affect what they already had planned, even mm-hmm. though they didn't realize they were going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of a head game at that point. So I my initial thought is yes, you'd actually want to. It could it could influence things. You could you know you could mess with their whole patterns, their behaviors, and 
and just distort what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But in the scheme of things, yeah, that that's a that's a great point. Does it even actually matter? And mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, we've we've seen in we've seen the ability for it more generically to have an impact. I know I've done some stuff before where we've been able to influence environments that way. Mm-hmm. And um it, it worked and it was worth it and that kind of precision was absolutely worthwhile Mm -hmm. so i still believe it can but i just you just don't know for sure Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. so many different decision decision making processes going on on that court at the same time that it's it's exponentially more complicated Mm -hmm. and i so i definitely want to talk about your your other work and your and your background and, and where this sort of expertise and experience comes from but just one last question about the team space stuff before we go there is so we've it seems like in the dabbling with this this year, it seems like there's sort of a practical uh, on-court application, possibly with this shot caller stuff somewhere in the future. And then it seems like there's a possible um, sort of off-court team building, how you structure your roster kind of application too. Um, do you see any other uh, hypothetical applications in the future? Are there other things you'd like to sort of explore or play with? So one of the I'm definitely interested in doing more with the lineups and some of the situational lineups. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to talk about it later, but like specifically that Suns three three point guard mm-hmm. idea and understanding how their shot patterns change based on the lineup. Yeah, I think that I mean from a coaching standpoint, I would think that would be immensely helpful to not just look at someone's shot chart and then overlap four others on top of it, but then say when they play together, things actually change and here's what changes. I think, I think that is definitely somewhere to go further. Mm -hmm. I'm also just interested in doing more kind of like career projection type stuff with these. So understanding, you know, like how Kevin Durant progresses over his career, but Mm -hmm. then look at, you know, when Westbrook's on the court, does, does his shot selection even change? Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that. I think, I think are some of the next places I want to go. I also wanted to look at, you know, just kind of like the previous NBA champs to look mm-hmm. at some of the previous MVPs mm-hmm. and see how do how do their shot selections look and then comparing mm-hmm. them to current players to see who actually reminds us of some of these players. It's just interesting. It's kind of fun stuff to do too. But mm-hmm. I think you- there's a lot of different ways to go, but... Do you think there's, this is sort of a, this would be an obviously an enormous undertaking, but, um, you know, like a lot of... Um, so let's say like a lot of draft projection models uh, start with um, start with similarities uh, or similarity scores or finding players who are similar and then they chart you know age age curves for for players who are similar and sort of use that to project a player's career. Is that uh, like a possible thing? You know, you take uh, take Andrew Wiggins this year, find you know go back the last ten years, find players who had really similar shot patterns for their rookie seasons, and then look how their their hunting grounds develop over the course of their career to maybe maybe project Wiggins or something like that? Absolutely. I think I think it's definitely possible. Um, what's his name? I think it's Peter Bashai just yeah. released that website with the shot signature stuff, mm-hmm. which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. It's pretty awesome stuff. Um, it would be similar to that, but just the actual map on the court was kind of how I saw it. Is mm-hmm. You could start to compare you know, the amount of space that's used, the amount of progression over time, the precision, all that kind of stuff. I absolutely think that's possible. It'd be great to dig further into how the college shooting projects into the pros. Obviously, you've got coaching and system differences and all Mm -hmm. that, and just legitimate data issues. Like, we just don't get the college data like we do the pro data, obviously, Mm -hmm. at at this point. Um, But I'd like to think any of that is possible. For me, it just comes down to time. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean... 
there's lots of different avenues with it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm like, I like how it's turned out so far. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, ex- I've been excited to follow along, and uh, again, like, really excited. We've gotten to share it at Nylon Calculus, but um, so I'm hoping that now maybe we can move into your background a little bit because um, you, you have an interesting background in your, um, your skill set and experience with these sort of spatial applications is, uh, I, I think. Probably unique among people who are doing basketball analytics. I'm wondering if you can, yeah, talk about uh, the work that you've done in the past with this. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's definitely I'd assume somewhat of a different path. But I was originally a crime analyst in Arizona. So mm-hmm. as a crime analyst, you're, it's it's trending towards being kind of like a data scientist or an analyst type. But what you do is you're going through crime data and you're looking for patterns and trends and you're looking to identify unique decision-making processes in in these different crime types, right? Mm -hmm. And specifically as like a tactical crime analyst, what you're doing is you're looking for serial offenders is what Mm -hmm. it really comes down to. So, you know, groupings of crimes that you know or you strongly think are being committed by the same suspect. So the bank robbers, the rapists, the mm-hmm. auto thieves, some of the, some of the more serious, you know, stranger violence type crimes. Right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty fascinating stuff. But what you're doing is you're looking at it from like a tabular matrix based view. Mm-hmm. So you're culling through all these different, you know, fields and variables and comparing across crimes and all this stuff and then building out these linkages between events. And then that lends itself towards doing predictions on some of these crimes also. So what you do is instead of looking at all of your bank robberies in a city, right, you'd pull out and say these seven based on, you know, all these different characteristics, they're being committed by the same suspect. Mm -hmm. And if this all remains constant, the eighth one's going to occur at this location at this day at this time Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So then that that's kind of where my background was. It was heavy in GIS, geographic information systems, heavy enough that I wound up, you know, going back to school for it as well. But um, that background in terms of understanding and pin mapping crimes and then taking it to other levels and then getting into predictive stuff, eventually just being a basketball fan, I was like, you know what, this, I think there's actually applications here. There's actually a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. It sounds twisted to say, but I started treating the individual players on a court as criminals criminals that we would study. (laughs) So it's like if all of the crime in your city is actually being committed by, you know, yeah, well, but by X number of offenders, right? Well, on the court, you've got all these decisions being made by Mm -hmm. 10 people at a given time. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise, but it's really just different signals amongst, you know, a finite number of individuals. Mm -hmm. So the the parallels started to hold true, and if that held up, then some of the analytic methods were going to hold true too. And so far, so good. Is is kind of uh-huh. long and short of it. Well, it's really funny because um, you know people complain about how noisy basketball data is, and how complicated, and how there's so many moving moving parts, and it's so fluid, you know, compared to something like baseball. But I would imagine that a basketball data set is probably much more cleaner and controlled than most of the stuff you were used to working with. Yeah, well, it's fixed. You know, it's it's not fixed. That's a terrible word to use, I suppose. <laughs> Basketball is fixed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, but it's, you know, it's a controlled environment. There's no, you can't go outside of the basketball court and still have events occur. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's like, you know, you've got, with crime, you've got crime in other cities and border cities and all this kind of stuff that may be related to what you're studying. In basketball, yeah, it's set and it's, it's there's controlled times, there's controlled space. And, you know, with all the sport view data and NBA.com's website and basketball mm-hmm. reference, 
the access to it and how clean it is, it it's amazing to me. Like it's it's been great. Mm-hmm. So that's made a lot of the parallels even more easier to make happen mm-hmm. because the data is just there, ready to be used. Um, it seems like spatial analysis is is the next frontier in in I guess sports analytics. It probably I mean it obviously goes beyond basketball. Um, do you feel like it, it seems like one of the one of the things is it's very exciting. We have all this great new sport view data and stuff like that, but we're still sort of working. It, it's still all distilled down to data points and numbers, and we still um, like I'm thinking back to that Zach Lowe Grantland piece from a couple years ago about the Raptors system with the ghost yes. defenders, where they're feeding all those points, and they can they. They they take the data from the real world and then they feed it back into a system that lets them visualize it again, mm-hmm. and and so I'm wondering what you and it seems like that's the idea with this with this team space stuff is to is to take spatial data and then actually turn it into a a, a form where you can see it in a way that's somewhat related to you know like what you actually see while you watch the game you know what's happening on the court, um, and and so I'm wondering if you feel like that that space between the the hard data and the number the you know the tables the sport view tables that are you know available on nba.com and then actually being able to put it back into a form that captures some essence of that spatial you know relationship if that's sort of the the barrier right now yeah i th- i think that's exactly it so when nba.com started um producing the movement charts where mm-hmm. you can track kind of like what the Raptors had created, except it was just the actual play. Mm-hmm. I think that opens the aperture for that. And I completely geeked out when I saw those <laughs> because I thought those were amazing. Yeah. Just, for me, I've never been one to watch video necessarily, mm-hmm. right? When it came to basketball, like I can't watch plays. It's just not my style mm-hmm. in terms of understanding it. But when I saw those show up, I was like, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. I'll, I'll see you all later. I'm just going to go bury myself in these. Because, and that's why I tried to use them in that Suns piece recently. Because mm-hmm. I think those are the coolest things. You can just replay it. And you can just watch these points move. And the way they do it, it, it to me, it's called a minimum convex polygon. Where they have that border mm-hmm. around all five players. And you can see it expand and contract. I mean, that is so telling. Because if you really want to understand like the spatial dynamics of both mm-hmm. teams at the same time, you can we could measure and calculate how those spaces change and ebb and flow as the ball moves around. And there's so many calculations that I'm sure some of these teams are doing and some of them aren't, Mm -hmm. but understanding those relationships on a successful possession, I think Mm -hmm. is, is a gold mine. And there's so much that could be done with that. And then related to all this, it's interesting because last year I had a failed sport view paper or Mm -hmm. sport view. I'm sorry. Sloan paper. Yeah. I'm not afraid to admit it. It's all good. (laughs) We're we're all friends here. But, um, and what I did was talked about how the evolution of crime mapping is just like the evolution of basketball charts at this point. It's Mm -hmm. just, this is like on speed. It's happening so much faster because in crime mapping, we went from literally putting pins on a wall and doing pin mapping, you know, crime by crime type stuff. Then they went to chloropleth mapping where it was, you know, color coding by beats or by city boundaries or whatever. So you mm-hmm. could and then and then they went into densities and three dimensional things and movement and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Well with chow charting, we've done the exact same thing. Last season, 
you know, we finally transitioned away from actual dots representing everything, mm-hmm. which was great to get say goodbye to dots. Yeah. Dots are crap. Like <laughs> you can't see dots on top of dots. It, it's a mess. You can't mm-hmm. actually interpret anything from that. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the color coded polygons with the different zone shot zones, right? Yeah. Those are always great, but you've got all the edge error potential, you know, shots that lie right on the border of one zone versus the other. Mm-hmm. So as I mean, Kirk Goldsberry to his credit, he he made this happen. He started this movement which is awesome and it's led us down this path leading to this and it's like as the fan base and the user groups and the teams get more comfortable with it mm-hmm. this is the natural progression of things and it, it's pretty awesome to see it happen and I, I guess I hope to be a part of it at the same time you mm-hmm. know? So. so one of the things we've talked about on, on some Nylon Calculus email threads and I feel like maybe it has come up on a podcast although I can't remember who who I was talking about this with but um so if if that's the if that's the boundary and and moving in that direction is is sort of um where the next advances are to be it seems like one of the huge limiting factors then is computing power and technical skill and um I, th- I feel like the conversation we were having on nylon calculus was about that that teams were looking for um, the teams were looking for programmers with really specific technical skills to add to their analytics departments. And in, that in, in some areas like that, the basketball knowledge was not really important that they, um, they needed people to do, you know, massive database work. And then thinking back to the, the, um, the Sloan paper last year on, on EPV and about how, um, that, that they were sort of able to crunch those numbers, but only using like this massive supercomputer that's, that's available. I can't remember if it's at MIT or Harvard. And so, um, it was sort of like painfully obvious right there with that paper that there was no, there was no hope in the near future of doing any of that sort of thing in real time, which is, you know, I, I would suppose sort of like the, the Holy grail of this is, you know, is being able to have that information in the moment. Um, so is that, would you, would you say that that's kind of a limiting factor right now? Yeah, I think so. And that's, I guess that's one of the trickiest parts. I think there's, there needs to be some sort of balance though, because, Mm -hmm. I I remember that same conversation, and yeah, it's definitely trending towards needing you know tech savvy and tech heavy, skills heavy people, regardless of where they learn them, yeah. to be able to apply to this data. Because you know, regardless of comparing it to crime, it's still you know pretty messy and a lot to go through, acquire and clean and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, they've almost got to have some sort of subject matter expertise or background or at least baseline comprehension of mm-hmm. what it is they're looking at to appreciate something mm-hmm. when it's actually significant or not. You mm-hmm. know? So it's like they can't just be you know, someone that's never understood basketball at all, I think. But where that balance is struck, I mean, you start talking about a pretty narrow population that can do both of those things somewhat mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you're right. I think the real time stuff is always the dream. It's always where people want to be for the most part. Mm -hmm. I'd argue even if it was like quarterly type thing, or even if it was at halftime, that'd still be, that'd be pretty damn cool. I mean, it would take one of the more innovative teams like the Raptors or Mm -hmm. even like, like the Mavericks or someone like that to really, you know, say, okay, here's what, here's how that half went. Here's, you know, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong to have that all processed semi real time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's, possible at least if you were doing it in a game i don't think it would take nearly the computing power it did for like the epv stuff Mm -hmm. just because they were looking at an entire season of data yeah but still i mean that that's a pretty big undertaking at that point yeah so some serious hardware infrastructure that you know a lot of maybe the the 
uh, teams who are casually engaged in analytics are, are sort of going to get turned off at that point. Yeah, and I think Seth kind of nailed this point a while ago, is that this kind of analysis is going to help you on the fringes a lot of times. It's mm-hmm. not going to be the thing that like takes you from 20 wins to 50 wins necessarily. It might take you from 45 to maybe 50 or something, yeah. whatever the case is. That's an investment you know, from a team standpoint. It starts to become real of do we actually make the commitment for the hardware, the the people, the personnel, everything about this to you know go all in on it. And mm-hmm. some teams, I'm sure don't want to do that <laughs> yeah um so uh shifting gears a little bit or, uh back to you and thinking about your process um dabbling in this and sort of arriving at it with with this this skill set that you had for your for your career and then being interested in basketball and seeing the overlap um when you are you know, when you're putting things together for nylon calculus, where do the ideas come from? You see something on the court you want to investigate further. Um, do you, you know, uh, I know sometimes I find myself watching something and then I go to the data to see if it matches. And then sometimes I find myself sifting through data, looking for something, find something else that looks interesting and then, you know, sort of investigate further to see if there's actually, you know, uh, a story there worth telling. Right. I think for me, it's a little bit of all of that, but I know at first, and especially with the team space stuff, it started uh-huh. with the data. Yeah. So it was once we got that data and were able to get it consistently, uh-huh. I was like, I, to me, my mind just started coming up with ways to use it. Mm-hmm. And then it led to knowing some of the things I could do. It was time to try some things. So yeah. it was almost an experimentation at first of we have this data. What mm-hmm. can I do with it? Yeah. Knowing that Austin was making like, the regular legit shot charts and everything. I was like, well, what else could we do with this spatially? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where that started. And then once I went down that path, it was like every piece kind of fueled the next one for me. Because it was like, okay, if I can do this for one team, I could obviously do them for every team. Mm -hmm. If I can do them for last season, I can do them for all the champs. And then once, this is the piece I think the start has set it apart too is, if I can visualize it, but in you know in GIS applications, I can actually calculate it and then compare things and do math mm-hmm. against those areas. I, so those it was it became kind of a constant churn of I kept iterating something new from there. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of the other things, it's been either seeing something or honestly basketball Twitter and just seeing <laughs> the dialogue that goes on there. And either wanting to throw up a flag and be like, no, that's nonsense. Uh-huh. Or being like, yeah, I agree with that idea too. And then, but then wanting to actually see, does that hold up? Is this player doing this? You know, whatever the case may be. Um, so there was a lot of that. With the predictive stuff with Mello, it was once I did the, the team shot charts and knowing my background in crime analysis, I was uh-huh. like, well, if I can do them this way. And I've got this is event based data. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta at least try this. Yeah. And I dabbled with it before, like last season, before I had consistent data. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I thought I was onto something, so it was time to just take it further. Uh-huh. And so that it, it's kind of a mix of all of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, it's funny you mentioned basketball Twitter as a as a uh, a cauldron of ideas. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I, a little embarrassed to admit this, but I do that. I do that frequently where it's like. Um, 
you know, I'm like, shit, I got 45 minutes, you know, I, I want to sit down and, and just, you know, bang something out, 500 words, it, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. And I've got no ideas. I'm like, oh, I'll open up Twitter and see what people are talking about. And yep. inevitably, it's like 10 tweets in. I'm like, oh, I, yeah, I let me write something little about that. Like, uh, uh, Monday for hardwood paroxysm, I, same thing. I was like, I had 45 minutes. Opened up Twitter, saw somebody saying something about how ugly the Rockets' offense was, and and forty five minutes later, I, you know, I had like six hundred words about you know that that uh, um, you know ambient dissonance is still a style. For <laughs> yeah, I I have to admit too. So here's the thing: I don't. It's it's funny when I think about Twitter in general because uh-huh. I don't. When I see these, I get these glimpses from certain people I follow into like regular Twitter. Yeah. And it actually scares the crap out of me. And I don't <laughs> understand regular Twitter. Yeah. Basketball Twitter, I enjoy for what it is. And it's hard to explain to someone that isn't like following it regularly that mm-hmm. it's like, no, it's not. I don't understand like what's going on with the Kardashians and stuff. Yeah. I don't know about like the social media trends. I'm just following. You yeah, know, people are writing about and in game stuff, and they're like, people tweet during games. That's a thing. I'm like, yes, of course it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. It absolutely spawns a lot of ideas and some fascinating rants and things like that. So yeah, it um, it, it's pretty intense that way. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I I've had to uh, the in game stuff. I've had to shut myself down this year. I don't have it open while I'm watching games anymore because it it got to the point where I just I just couldn't concentrate on what was you know I, I couldn't concentrate on what was going on. You know, I'd um, yeah, my my eyes were on my on my computer instead on the TV screen. I'd look up and realize I missed <laughs> half the quarter. You know, because I was you know making snarky jokes or you know trying to dig up a, a wet hot American summer gift to throw back <laughs> at somebody or something like that. Yeah, I do it during during commercials. I'll check my timeline more than anything now, just out of curiosity. Uh-huh. And uh, oh, that's what it was before you brought up the the Rockets' offense. It's yeah, funny because I have to give Nate Jones all the credit in the world for this, but he had said that. You know, they're playing like it's a video game where they have all the cheat codes. Yeah. And I thought that was just worded perfectly because that's exactly what it feels like. It's like they're doing everything well within the rules and bounds mm-hmm. of basketball, but something doesn't feel quite right. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's like they do have the cheat codes and they've they've gamed the system and they're just exploiting it. But you can't be <laughs> mad at it necessarily. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I want to make sure we actually get to talk about some specific basketball stuff <laughs> before, uh, before we run out of time, but, um, you've wrote a couple, a couple really great things, uh, in the past, um, in the past couple weeks and they're again, built around the, the team space charts we've been talking about. But, um, one of them that was really interesting, uh, a couple weeks ago is about the evolution of John Wall and about how his hunting grounds have sort of become more refined and more specific over time. And then you drew, uh, drew an analogy to a player that I think a lot of people would would be surprised to hear John Wall compared to. Yes, and so I didn't so that's back to your previous question too. I didn't set out to compare John Wall to Steve Nash by <laughs> any means, right? <laughs> it was more I was just really intrigued with John Wall's progression. And mm-hmm. there'd been a lot of narrative based stuff about, you know, his maturity and how he's changed over time and, you know, he's grown up now and it's different and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, but is he really playing better? And I've <laughs> seen enough Wizards games this year to anecdotally be like, yes, absolutely, he looks phenomenal, right? Mm -hmm. So as I started analyzing him and looking back at how his shot charts have changed and how his stats have changed, I threw in that piece where I was like, well, let me just compare him to some contemporary greats, right? Chris Paul, Steve Nash, see how they look. And he was trending in between the both of them, which Mm -hmm. I thought was interesting, kind of, you know, a little better than Nash, not as good as CP3. Mm -hmm. 
And then when I looked at the shot charts, Nash had this progression over his career where, excuse me, he started to just center what he was doing. Mm -hmm. He went from a lot of diversity all over the court to really hone in over time towards the center where it was top of the key, three-pointers, a little bit on the wings, some stuff off the elbows, which looked like Amari pick and rolls, Mm -hmm. and then at the rim, right? So John Wall's trending in that direction. Now, is he going to end up at the the same point? I have no idea, you know, because mm-hmm. what I didn't do was say, oh, by the way, there's been X number of point guards that have followed this exact same trajectory yeah. and have never panned out like Steve Nash. You know, mm-hmm. that would be kind of in, in the researcher in me what I should have done, but, you know, just didn't get to it. And it's funny, too, about that article, because I thought that it would actually and I, I wanted it to actually cause a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want that engagement. People talk about they never read the comments. Yeah. And I get why some of like the bigger names don't because there's nothing good to come yeah. from them. I always want people to comment. I, I want to start an actual conversation about some of this stuff, you know, Yeah. and hoped it would. Once I wrote it, I was like, I didn't even think about it. And I'm like, wow, there could be some people that really take issue with this. And there was only only one person did. And it was I thought it was a good dialogue that we had on the site back uh-huh. and forth on the comments on it. Where he was just like, no, I'm not seeing this. But he was also like, I've never really watched John Wall. So I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, well, that's fair. But um, and to be clear, you were th- the the distinction to be made is that you were looking at the pattern of the shots they take, and so it was not necessarily implying that John Wall is going to uh, achieve Nash's level of efficiency. Right. Absolutely. So I didn't even. I looked at the stats for basketball reference, you know, the, the, per, the per possession stats, some of the advanced metrics on shot distributions and things like that, mm-hmm. and then the locations of where he's being most successful. Yeah. And really just noted that he's trending towards the same way Nash started to, mm-hmm. when Nash really picked up and, you know, hit his stride with the D'Antoni sons. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, you know, Wall's got more weapons on that team than he's ever had. The coaching is still is what it is but um that's a very polite way of saying yeah I, well you know I'm not, I'm not here to name names yeah. necessarily but um it is what it is but the, the passes he made too because that was something else too where people were like oh he doesn't pass like nash does i'm like no actually he does like his passes are amazing mm-hmm. but anyway back to what you were saying yeah it was about the location of his shots it spoke nothing to the actual efficiency necessarily mm-hmm. Because that was my initial reaction when I first read through it. I was like, well, yeah, but Nash is one of the greatest shooters of all time. And then, you know, uh, I slowed myself down and, and, and got back to the point of what you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's um, I think it's hard for people, or, or maybe not hard for people, but it's a new experience for people to think about these players as spatial beings, you know, because we're used to just interacting with data points, you know, we're used to interacting with, um, you know, highlight reels and then points per game and, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. even if it's true shooting percentage, you know, we know Nash is a true shooting percentage and John Wall is a true shooting percentage. We don't, we're not used to seeing them as, you know, as space that's being occupied. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, how I tend to try to function of trying to rule out some of the subjectivity of who they actually are. And Mm -hmm. I I know people would beat this up of, Oh, well, you're not considering all of it. You're right. But I'm doing that intentionally and admitting that I'm doing it. So I guess that counts for something, (laughs) but, um, 
you know, it, just just that, trying to understand how they occupy space because they're taking a shot from that spot, so they're taking away a shot from four other people on the court mm. at that point. Yeah. So there, there's a value that comes with that, and I think trying to understand their presence on the court from where they're shooting is an interesting way to go about it because it's much more than just a shot chart at that point. Yeah, know? and different players affect a defense in different ways, but there are some commonalities you know, a player standing at the elbow, you know, obviously, you know, Dirk standing at the elbow is different than Ray Felton standing at the elbow, but, you know, a, a player standing at the elbow will, will affect the defense in a certain way, you know, so there's, there's the, um, you know, there's the opposite side of that spatial relationship too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's one of the hidden gems about some of these shot charts is that as they've proliferated across the internet now. Mm -hmm is I think there's actually more defensive applications than there are from an offense learning about itself. Like if I was planning for a team, that's that would be what I'd be studying. Partially because I'm obsessed with it, but yeah. <laughs> just in general, that like that would be great insight into understanding the team I'm about to play and how mm -hmm. they how they get shots. Yeah. Um, so one of the other great pieces that you wrote was about the Suns and looking at their three point guard lineups, and yeah, you referenced this earlier, but looking at um, so you looked at team space charts for Bledsoe and Dragic and uh, Thomas, and then you looked at what their shot charts looked like when they overlapped when they were on the court together. Yeah, so this is one of those where in the offseason when they signed Isaiah Thomas and all the Bledsoe stuff was, what are they going to do? Are they going to keep him? Are they going to trade him? All this stuff. When they signed Thomas, it, it got so interesting to me. And be, having lived there for a while, so kind of following the Suns at least in the background, it was like always interested in them. How, what are they going to do with these three point guards? And my mind went to, are they actually going to play these three at the same time? That would be fascinating. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like three legit point guards that could start for a lot of different teams just playing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So late at night, I'll try to watch them in general just to see when they go to that lineup. I started to notice that it was, it was their crunch time lineup. They'd go with about four minutes left in the fourth quarter of a close game. They'd put the three of them in. Markeith Morris, the st the starting Morris twin, <laughs> yeah. and then like PJ Tucker, and that's that is a messed up lineup. Like that intentionally <laughs> just screws with the other team in good ways and bad. It's mm -hmm. like I saw them do it against the Lakers. They did it against the Wizards. They did it against the Pelicans. Like, <laughs> the stakes are a little lower against the Lakers, but <laughs> yeah. But to me, it was still interesting because it was very early in the season, and yeah. we we knew what the Lakers were going to be. But it was still one of these things. I'm like, how do they actually match up? Uh -huh. And on defense, they cause some chaos. It's pr it's pretty cool to watch. I thought mm -hmm. um, they don't have nearly as many mismatch. Like they're not affected by the mismatches as much as the other team seems to be. Mm -hmm. So they were going to that lineup. But then I, I got to wondering, well, how does that affect the shots that each of those three are used to taking? At least you know. And what the what the piece found, at least I thought, what I tried to drive home was that. Isaiah Thomas is not affected. He he is continues to get his exactly where he normally does. Mm -hmm. Bledsoe, for the most part, is not affected. And both of them, over the course of their careers compared to this year, they're just staying consistent, right? Mm -hmm. Drogic is the one that changes. That when they go to that lineup, his shooting goes away. Mm -hmm. He's much more, it seems like, of a facilitator. And he's not getting shots up from the corner. It's like his shoot, shooting activity completely changed. Now, whether that's good or bad is obviously debatable, mm -hmm. but to me, that 
that seemed interesting to note that he's the guy because one of them was there's only one ball so one of them would seemingly get affected by it somehow Mm -hmm. adversely and it it seemed to be him and when you throw in the contractual issues and all that kind of stuff it gets a little interesting because it makes you wonder what do they do next year does this experiment you know does it carry over is it a success do they even make the playoffs so I thought I thought it was pretty interesting, and those kind of dynamics I think are, are what some of those charts can at least shed light on of what's the difference. That's why the KD Westbrook thing comes up too. Yeah, it's funny because we looked at those. Um, you looked at those, and I had written uh, I'd written a couple things last year, or I f- at least I feel like a couple different things about the Bledsoe Dragic um, dynamic on the court, and. Um, for most of the for most of the way through last year, the numbers Dragic was great regardless of whether he was playing with Bledsoe or, or not. But Bledsoe was like dramatically worse when he yeah, was on the floor that. when he was on the floor with Dragic. And you could see it too. You watch the video; like he just he looked out of sorts. He just you know it, it, he it looked like he didn't know he sort of didn't know where he was supposed to be or what he was supposed to be doing. Um, and it's it's. A sort of a bummer that it seems like now Dragic is the one sort of getting shoved aside a little. Right. Well, and it's tricky too because Thomas has always been a shoot first point guard, right? Yeah. I mean, so you would not expect him to be as affected as much. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dragic has always been a little more malleable, it seems like, in terms of like styles, mm-hmm. which, which suits them well. And I think he helps make that work. Yeah. Because between the two of them, Bledsoe seems to be the one that takes the big shots in crunch mm-hmm. time. But then Thomas is just continually getting up his shots, <laughs> and Drogic is just making it happen, too. Yeah. But, and that's also where the sport view movement stuff started to play in, too. Mm-hmm. Because, again, you look at the po- – not even the dots for the players on those, but you look at how the polygons expand and contract. When those three are on the court, that polygon is just – they are so spread out. I thought mm-hmm. it was amazing to see, like, that's they're, – they're achieving exactly what they hope to. Yeah, so it's is is pretty interesting. Um, so you you uh, reference Westbrook and Durant too. Is that something that you've looked at yet, or is that something that's that's coming at some point? I haven't touched it yet because I just wanted more games this season with yeah. them playing together. It's been hard to get get a good sense, you know, mm-hmm. with their health issues and everything. But it's something I wanted to look into because that's always such a polarizing debate of specifically Westbrook, but who who's affected. Do they take different shots? Because I don't know if anyone's actually gone and looked at, like, does KD's activity, where he shoots from or how often, how much does it actually change when they play together? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it'd be worth looking into. Because it's this idea that they somehow can't coexist. Um, I don't know. I don't necessarily believe that. But, yeah. And it's a funny situational thing, and and maybe this is just because this is these are the points that the narrative emphasizes. But it seems like it happens more. It seems like there's more changes at the end of close games, and it seems like it's um, it's more of an issue in the playoffs than it is during the regular season. Yeah, absolutely, and it might be. Yeah, it might be because there's more of a microscope on it, and I know I don't get to watch as many Thunder games mm-hmm. in the regular season as I do in the playoffs. And I think part of it might be the the offense, the system that they run, for lack of a better term. Like I don't. <laughs> I, again, it's not to it's not to sharpshoot them, but I don't really comprehend what kind of scheme it is that they're running most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like some of these teams, you can watch it and go, oh, that there's there's a means. They're trying to achieve something here with this offensive set. I have no idea a lot of times. It's like they just spread it, they spread them out and let them go, mm-hmm. which might not be bad when you have two of the game's best 
in your lineup. So yeah. Um, so I also wanted to to talk before you go. You uh, you said you went to the Spurs Wizards earlier this week, um, and uh, and uh, had some thoughts on the game. Yeah. So it's interesting because you know there's this running debate about analytics versus basketball PhDs versus you have to watch the games to know what's going on versus you can get it all from the numbers, right? Yeah. So I've watched the Spurs on TV plenty of times and can fully appreciate what they're doing on, on offense in particular, right? Mm-hmm. But watching that offense in person, it, it changes how you feel about basketball. I was completely blown away. Like It was a beautiful thing to watch. It was every move, every dribble, every pass was done with purpose. Uh-huh. You, so the Wizards are legit this year. I think they're they're an absolute. They're the real deal. They're a good team, right? But their offense doesn't run with that kind of just like precision and deliberate uh-huh. activity. It was I, I was and there's something about watching it live and taking it in live that is just it was to, it was honestly breathtaking. Where I'm like, and they were losing the entire game. They finally went up by a point or two, like midway through the fourth quarter. But I was just watching them like, this is amazing. I'd look up and they're losing by 10. And it was just like, it doesn't phase them. Yeah. The substitutions as they just come in, like it was, it was powerful. So I guess what I'm advocating is there's a balance between the basketball PhD <laughs> and the, the strictly numbers-based approach. Uh-huh. But um, it, was, it, was, it was pretty impressive to watch. And, and it was f- also interesting to see John Wall. Oh, sorry, what were you saying? I was just going to say, did you feel like um... – I, I was really curious about this because I feel like I feel like I have a hard enough time keeping track of the pieces when I'm watching the Spurs on TV. Like it's frequently um, I'm watching, I'm paying attention as hard as I can, and all of a sudden there's like an open shooter, and I'm just like, "Shit, how did that happen?" I was staring at this guy, and I, you know, I totally missed that. And, and inevitably, you know, I feel like my eyes are always in the wrong place when I'm watching the Spurs, and I always have to, you know, rewind and 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 watch it again to to really see what happened. And I have the sense that if I was watching in person, it would be even worse. Like I would, I would just, I feel like I would just be lost. I wouldn't be able to keep track of it of anything. So I would have thought that too, but the interesting thing about a live game is you're not being spoon-fed the exact view. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I think mentally we go into a certain mode because you're always watching from the same camera angle. So you, you tend to resort back to the same tendencies of ball watching or whatever it is yeah. when you're watching it. But live, like you're, you're sitting at a different angle, different proje- projection on the court. So you're, I was able to take – we were kind of in the corner. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could take in – more of the court that way, yeah. and I found myself watching a lot of the movement more. Mm-hmm. It was, it was honestly, it was impressive. And how they do it, they played eleven different players in the first quarter, <laughs> it, and it was like every couple minutes they had a new guy coming in. They went eleven deep. I think only Kyle Anderson and uh-huh. I forget who, but I mean they they went even down to Jeff Ayers. Like they they cleared <laughs> the bench for the ball. oh Aaron Baines. Uh-huh. Those are the only two guys I didn't see in the first quarter. And it didn't even matter. But then on the other side of it, the Wizards' defense was there every step of the way. Uh-huh. So I, a credit to them. Like, they, they were dialed in, and it was, it was impressive to watch. And John Wall against Tony Parker, versus, and I've seen him against Chris Paul. I've seen him against Bledsoe. It's, it's been really interesting to watch because he's winning a lot of these matchups mm-hmm. when the two teams play. I mean, he's faster. He's able to just burn, blow by them. It's it's. I think he's arrived. I think he's he's something special. And yeah, 
Yeah, uh, it sounds like a great experience. In in general, when you're watching games, let's say you're watching a game at home, do you have certain things you focus on? Do you focus on off the ball? Um, I, that's, I feel like I ask everybody who comes on, like, I, I don't know, that's my my standard sort of question at the end. Like, what do you pay attention to when you watch the game? And everybody's like, oh, I try not to watch the ball. I try and watch a lot of off-ball defense and stuff like that. Um but it, yeah, I'm always curious about people's experiences too, and I, especially with with people who are in analytics. Like, if you're watching the game and thinking about like, oh, I wonder what the team space chart would look like for the Spurs in this game, you know, sort of as it's unfolding in front of you. So I have to be honest. Full disclosure: I've listened to this podcast enough times to know that was coming, and I absolutely <laughs> baited you into that question. I wanted to make sure you asked that because I just I just wanted to be asked it. Oh, well prepared guest. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was hoping it was coming, yeah. so I just grinned when I started do the Mori thing about the Matrix though. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for for that. Um no, I actually this probably doesn't come as much of a surprise, but I like watching the movement of the other four guys. I don't watch the defense as much uh-huh. as I'm watching the other four guys around the ball. So the actual space that they're occupying, mm-hmm. I'm continually interested in. So if they overload one side and then leave the ball handler by himself, or especially the effects of space on the pick and roll. Uh-huh. Because the other thing that you get from a live perspective more than on TV is how physically large these players are. Yeah. Like, when your shooting guard is six seven, like, and everyone else is that tall or bigger, it's the same size court that we're all used to. The actual space that they take up, sometimes there's just no room to even maneuver. Mm-hmm. So when I'm watching a game, I find it really interesting to see how these players actually fit into space uh-huh. and how they create opportunities, whether it's off a of pick and roll or just some of the other movement that's going on. To see how someone gets freed is what I'm always looking for. Like We know Danny Green's going to patrol kind of the baseline and then pop open on the wing, right? So how that happens once they cross half court is kind of some of the stuff I'm looking for. Uh-huh. Maybe, maybe one of the reasons I have such disjointed experiences actually watching games is because I watch so many Pacers games where it's just <laughs> somebody's pounding the ball at the top and Hibbert's, you know, calling for the ball and everybody else is just standing around watching. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I hear you. But there was the Reggie Miller era, and that that was yeah. wild. For you, not for me. Yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, even then, he was. I felt like even then, he was often the only guy moving. There'd be four people just standing, waiting to set a pick, and he would just sort of like, you know, it was like an obstacle course. He would just loop the loop all the way through until he was open. And <laughs> no, that that's true. And the other thing related to this too is, I always feel like there's one team that's the aggressor mm-hmm. on offense or defense, and it's really interesting when it feels like the defense is the aggressor of the two. So I think we see it with the Bulls a lot. We mm-hmm. saw it with the Pacers at the beginning of last year at yeah. least. And we used to see it in like even going back to like the 90s where it was the offense is reacting to the defense instead of the other way around. Yeah, That's pretty powerful when you can actually pick up on that and see it where it's like the offense is scrambling because the defense is just so dominating the way they're occupying and like they're forcing you into their system instead of reacting to what you're doing with the ball. That's, that's pretty. It's pretty interesting when when you can like pick up on it and see it. That's an interesting idea. I feel like that's something I notice a lot more with college basketball because often there's such a dramatic, you know, there there can be such a talent gulf or or uh, uh, you know system differences and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. I, I haven't often thought about that. But that's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's always intrigued me when when you can pick up on it. But yeah. <laughs> 
Oh. Well, uh, uh, we've been going for quite a while, uh, so uh, I won't take up any more of your evening, but I, I really appreciate you making time, Matt. It was a lot of fun, and uh, we should definitely do this again later this year. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This was actually the first podcast I've ever done, so I hope this isn't the last R-squared one because of it, but uh, <laughs> it's been a good time. <laughs> we'll keep going. We'll keep going. I feel bad. I was very, uh, you know, I was, I was vocal to me in the year. I was like, I'm going to be on a schedule. We're going to do these once a week. It's going to be great great and um for those of you who don't know i have a two-year-old at home so schedules are impossible and uh but uh trying to keep up with it as much as possible but uh yeah this this was a good one i really enjoyed the conversation and uh um i know i say this on the podcast every time or i feel like i say this every time but really the the uh the the genesis of this podcast was like i wonder if i could get really interesting people to talk to me and let me ask them questions and satisfy my own curiosity um (laughs) So, yeah, it's great when somebody like you is willing to come on and explain a bunch of stuff to me and let me learn and, and, uh, and you know, ask the kind of questions that I'm sitting wondering about while I'm reading your stuff and, and uh, you know, chatting with you on email. So, yeah, thanks hey, a lot. Times. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. Absolutely. Absolutely.